Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Born in Canada, David Gleave started out working in bars in London and Dublin and fell into wine by chance. He's since gone on to become one of the world's leading experts on Italian wine, as well as the founder and now chairman of Liberty Wines. Listen to his chat about the master of wine qualification, his second love Australia, his passion for cycling, and why travel is essential to his job as a wine merchant. Hi, David. How are you? Very well, thanks, Tim. And you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, you just got back from Italy, haven't you? Cycling. Yeah, a bit of cycling, a bit of wine. Um, there's the sort of there's the start of the Giro d'Italia um, on on Saturday, so we went to watch that. One of our wine producers there, Fantini, are very involved in in uh, cycling. Um, so we did a bit of bike riding and watched the race, and uh, and it was great fun. And we had three days of gorgeous weather. Sounds perfect. Thighs of steel, then. If only. <laughs> I mean, listen, I mean, as people could hear from your very slight accent, you've kept it over all these years. You're Canadian, aren't you? And uh, the more precise, you were born in Toronto. I just wonder, were your parents wine drinkers? Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, I think my mother would have Harvey's Bristol Cream. You know, her idea of a, of a wild night would be two Bristol Cream. And um, I think, you know, my father would have uh, occasional beer and we might have a bottle of wine at Christmas. Um, but, you know, they were not wine drinkers. And were you aware of the local Ontario wine scene? Was it, was it up and running by then? Um, as I became a teenager, I became aware of the cheaper end of the Ontario wine scene, which in those days made Lambrusco look like a fantastic product. You know, there's something called Baby Duck, which we used to drink, which is made out of Concord, I think, or some other sort of, um, you know, sort of non-vinifera variety. So in those days, you know, in the sort of the the early 70s, uh, there wasn't really that much of an Ontario wine scene. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's developed a lot in recent years. Um, but I think it's, its biggest problem is it's still a sort of protected industry there. And, you know, it's never had to sort of open its self to the outside world there are some producers who do mm. and are doing very well now mm. um but uh yeah back in those days uh it, it there was you know not much worth protecting mm. i mean you didn't go to university in ontario you went out to vancouver on the west coast uh, and you famously dropped out didn't you to go traveling I mean, what were you studying or what were you supposed to be studying i was studying supposed to be studying um english and philosophy sort of a, like a mixed course and uh I think, you know, I, my family had moved to Vancouver. I didn't quite settle in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, right, I'll take a year off, travel, and then go back to Toronto or Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for 46 years later, I'm still traveling. Um, and, and so it's been a long gap year. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's been interesting, really. I don't know what, you know, people say what effects it had on you, on you, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I don't really know if it has. Um, it, you know, I think the biggest effect in a way was coming over here, you know, as a, as a bit of an outsider. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not an outsider. I'm white middle-class speak English as a native language, et cetera. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't go to school or university over here. So I've been much more difficult to, to pinpoint. And, you know, it's, um, I think probably not going to university also sort of gave me a bit of a, 
an incentive to to you know when I did the MW or something to to succeed you know to, to prove myself. and you passed first time as well didn't you I mean so uh, yeah it was it was much easier in those days so um, you probably yeah. would have done all right in the degree then I maybe you've been, maybe you've done a PhD and you'd be an English academic or something <laughs> well I, I always thought I wanted to be a teacher or something like that so <laughs> thankfully I sort of um, you know got out of that uh, uh, what brought you to London I mean, was it the music scene because you got a job at a place called the music machine didn't you in Mornington Crescent this would have been punk you know full-on punk time wouldn't it 78 the Pistols had played there um, previously, and we had you know people like um, UK Subs. They used to play there. Um, you know, Suggs from Madness. He hung out at the bar there. Lemmy from Motorhead would hang out at the bar. What a combination, um, Lemmy and Suggs. <laughs> and and they were the nicest people. They were so nice and so polite, and 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 they were really a joy to to deal with. But I, I think I just I came to London, hung out here a bit, then went and did my trip around Europe, got as far as Israel, hitchhiking and, and training, etc. And then came back to London. And I thought, you know, London's a pretty interesting place. It's mm-hmm. more interesting. I'll take another year off and I might sort of, you know, um, you know, the school of life in London. Um, and then I just, I found it sort of um, endlessly fascinating. And I, I, I just never went back. And did Music Machine have a have a wine list, or just was it music and beer? It, it was music, and it was beer, and it was snake bites, and sort of you know, um, snake bite with a black currant top, mate, and things like that. You know, um, so there was no learning about wine there, really. I can't get over the, this image of Lemmy and Suggs at the same bar. <laughs> <laughs> Quite, quite funny. Yeah. For, for there, you went to Dublin and famously yeah. working in a, a, a gay bar for a while called, called, called Bartley Duns, I believe. Uh, yes, I get the impression indeed. that those three years were quite formative for you because you've, you've retained this sort of affinity with Ireland, haven't you? Was that when you wanted to realise you wanted to make a career in wine? I think so, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I was offered a job by my, my boss at the music machine. He was going to Dublin and my mother was from Dublin. So... Um, I thought, you know, it'd be fun, fun to go there for six months. It was going to be a six months um, sort of contract, as it were. And um, I got over there. The six months was up and I'd met a girl. So I decided to stay a bit longer. Um, but, you know, I didn't, didn't really have any qualifications for a job. And in those days to work in pubs, because that's the only thing I knew how to do, um, you needed to be a member of a union and have gone through the apprenticeship in, in, in Ireland. And I, I didn't do that. There are a few pubs which were outside that and, Barley Duns was one of them. Mm. And um, it, it was a fascinating place. You know, during the day, it served the, the rag trade in, in sort of center of, of Dublin, just off of uh, um, Grafton Street. Mm. And they had bought, you know, they had a customer a few years before I was there, which is 1980, who had come back from Paris and was an actor working at the, at the Gaiety Theatre and said, you must have wine. You know, I drank wine every day in Paris. So they went out and bought wine. Um, but they bought fantastic wines, but they bought very badly because they, um, you know, they didn't know how to sell them. So they had sitting in their cellars, 64 and 66 clarets and 69 and 71 Domaine bottled Burgundy selected by Alexis Lachine and bottled by a young Georges de Boeuf. So I was sort of, you know, trying to sort these things out because it was been a bit of a jumble. I'm wondering what's the difference in the wines. And, uh, you know, I, I started buying the odd bottle. I'd save up because there were, you know, the 71 Von Remenes from, I think, I think, I think Grivo was one of the men's. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, there were seven, seven Irish old punts. So, you know, 
that doesn't sound very much today. But at the time, it was probably, you know, sort of 15% of my take-home salary, as it were. So, you know, it was a lot of money. So I would buy occasional bottles. And I decided to buy a book to learn a bit more about them. And I bought Hugh Johnson's book called Wine. And um, I, I then did a wine course. I did the higher certificate, as it was in those days. And, um, and I thought, you know, I've been away from home for a while. It doesn't look like I'm going to go back and go to university. I'd better develop some form of, of you know, expertise, something I know something about. Um, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go do the diploma. And in those days, you couldn't do The diploma didn't exist in, in Dublin. So that's when I came back to London uh, in 1983 to do diploma. And then when you were back in London, you met Nick Belfridge, already MW, I think by then, wasn't he? He was the leading expert on Italian wine, sadly no longer with us, and we all miss him. And Nick kind of became a great mentor and then offered you a job, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, I met Nick, he was, I came back and I was, I, I got a job, managed to bag myself a job as a wine manager in a restaurant in Clerkenwell. And Nick was the consultant there. So we tasted um, quite a bit and he was writing Life Beyond Lombrusco at the time. And so he had a lot of wines to taste, Italian wines. And um, so I offered to sort of, you know, help organize the tastings and, and as long as I could get involved. So I'd come in on my days off and organize those. And I got to know Nick quite well. And, and when I left the restaurant, he offered me a job. And, you know, I learned so much, so much from Nick um, about, about wine and, and many other things. And, um, and I think, you know, most of all, when I, when I, past the MW. Um, I think he was, he was a bit surprised that I did it, but, but you know, I, I managed it. And, and he, um, I then said, you know, I you know, learned French at school. I, you know, I, I, I sort of speak French modest, moderately well. Um, I want to improve it so that I can really, you know, live there in, in, you know, when I go visit people, discuss things in depth. And he said, don't be daft. He said, you know, Everyone in the wine business speaks French. Mm. No one speaks Italian. Mm. Learn Italian because it's the coming country. So that was 1986. Um, and it's you know, probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. And that's where your kind of lifelong passion for Italian wine started. And by 89, you'd written a book about it, which I've still got on my shelves and still bloody good, actually. I mean, what, what is it that appeals to you so much of, about Italy? Um, I first, I don't really know. I think part of it is I grew up in Toronto. Which you know, in the in the nineteen sixties, Toronto was the third largest Italian city in the world after Rome and Milan. Wow! It was full of you know Italian immigrants, and it was and you know they broke down the the sort of the old Scottish Presbyterian aspect mm-hmm. of Toronto and made it a much more exciting place. So I was predisposed to think that Italian wine was quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I you know one of the first really good wine books I read was um, Burton Anderson's Vino. Um, you know, soon after that came out and I found that was fascinating. And then I think, you know, it's partly, you know, Nick steered me in a, in a direction I was inclined to go, but it's also, it's the underdog Mm -hmm. in those days, you know, everyone, you know, the UK wine trade was, was a very different place, much more narrow background, you know, sort of public school, university mm. or army, you know. I remember it well. <laughs> pinstripes for de rigueur, not yeah. sort of pinstripes you wear these days, but, mm. the, you know, the old pinstripes. And, mm. and it was it was quite sort of, um, uh, yeah, you know, a narrow range of wines available. And, and the definition of quality wine was, you know, white burgundy and claret. Mm. And, you know, I, th- I think 
Italy was changing at the time as well. And it was so lucky to be involved at that time. So I think all those factors came together and made Italy seem um, interesting. And, and, and I think it's endlessly fascinating. It's constantly changing, constantly developing, and it is so vast and varied. Well, I mean, the, the vastness and the variedness of it, if you like, and the diversity of it is, is one of its appeals, but it also makes it quite hard to get to grips with, I think. Uh, I just wonder if anybody listening to this podcast, if you're giving them advice about, about learning about Italian wine, what would you advise them to do? I mean, learn the language is obviously a bit of it, but, but how, how do you get to grips with Italy as a subject that's so vast? Um, I think, you know, you need to break it down in a way. Um, and, you know, probably Italy you know, arguably is not really a country, it's a collection of regions, mm. you know, even after, you know, 160 years after um, its unification. Um, you know, topographically, it is so divided because of, you know, 80% of it is hills or mountains. And, you know, even going from one region to another sometimes means crossing the Apennines or, you know, going over, a, a, you know, difficult getting to places. Um, so I think that regional part of Italy is, is still very important. So decide you're going to focus on a particular area. If that mm. is Piemonte, mm. then, you know, just look at, you know, the grape varieties there and try to come to terms with, you know, Barbera and Dolcetto on the one hand mm. and Nebbiolo on the other. Mm. That's diversity. And, you know, if you try to pick, oh, I'm going to do all of Italy, you Too know, much. Go from Sicily to Piemonte. You know, the vineyards of Barolo are closer to London mm. than they are to Palermo, mm. the capital of Sicily. Mm. So the you know the that the, the, that so the length as well is another you know contributing factor. So cut it up into bite-sized pieces and do it that way. But I think you're right. Learning the language, you know, I, I had to learn the language because in those days hardly anyone spoke um, English as a second mm. language. Mm. Um, today most of the young people speak English and, and, you know, like in a lot of countries and do it very well. But you're always going to get to know people much better and understand the intricacies, intricacies yeah. and the subtleties mm-hmm. of a place if you speak the language. As, yeah, as I, mean, I, I always find that some of the best stuff you get and the most pleasure you get is sitting around a table with people having supper and a glass of wine and people, you know, get a bit merry and then they'll tell you all sorts of stuff that exactly. they'd never tell you in English, but they'll tell you if you're eavesdropping on a conversation. And I think people appreciate it if you bother to learn the yeah. language and speak yeah. it to them. Yeah. It shows a respect for, 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 for the people you're dealing with. I yeah, think. I think so. D- tell us about the Master of Wine, because you did that pretty early, as you said, in part in 86. Has, has it been useful to you? It sounds like it was useful to you at the start in that it gave you the self-confidence. You said Nick was a bit surprised that he'd passed. Were you a bit surprised yourself, in a way? Uh, yeah, I, like a lot of people, I didn't expect to pass first time. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I did. Um, I Select think, club, you see. I knew, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. I knew the taste, my tasting was, was all right, um, you know, but it had been a long time since I'd done exams. Um, but, but yeah, I think I was, I was pleased. But what's it done for me? I think it, it gave me confidence, but I think people make a mistake. You know, it's, it's like thinking that you pass the Master of Wine and therefore you're at the pinnacle of what you're going to know. Mm. It's a, it's a bit like finishing, you know, university and going into the workplace. You go back down to the bottom of the, the mm. pile again and you have to work your way back up. And I think the MW is really only a starting point for future. It opens a few doors for you, mm. um, gives you a base of knowledge, 
but you've got to build on that base um, if you really want to understand what's happening in the world of wine. I, I think it's very true. I think the worst mistake you can make is to think, hey, I know everything. I'm a master of, I'm a master of wine, master of the universe. I think, you know, <laughs> it's a bit like Italy. I sometimes think I know less now than I did 35 years ago. Um, exactly. Just because the more you, know, you dive into things, the more you yeah. realize there is to understand. Yeah. I mean, you, you worked with Nick, as you said, at Wine Cellars, which then became Minotrio Wine Cellars, and you did two years there. And then you left, right, um, to set up Liberty Wines, which was, which was a big risk at the time. And you described it as a, as a white knuckle ride, which is sort of an understatement, I think. I just wonder how scary it was at the time to, to, to be doing that, because there were just four of you setting up this new business. I mean, you know, you'd obviously been in the business, but you'd not run your own thing. Yeah. You'd been involved with somebody else's businesses, hadn't you? It's... You know, I was I was sacked by Anotra by 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 the the owner. Then I, you know, we had a difference of opinion, and we've talked about it, you know, quite a bit over the years over the odd lunch. And it's uh, you probably thanked him. I, I thank him every time I see him. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Raymo. Uh, but uh, but you know, he he had he ran a brilliant business, and and um, you know, he sold it about fifteen years or so ago. Um, but I think it's. You know, it's the benefit of hindsight, it seems more a, a white knuckle ride. You know, at the time, um, you know, I came home and told Lucianne, my wife, and and she had already handed in her notice um, to, to the job she was doing at the time. She was in wine PR and, and wanted to do something else. So she just said, okay, great, let's do something together. And, you know, she was non, she was completely non-phased by the whole thing. And um, so that, I think, you know, really gave me, um, you know, confidence um, I think, you know, you, you just have to do everything when you start and you just, you don't think that it's going to fail, but mm-hmm. the you know, benefit of hindsight and the more knowledge you have, mm-hmm. you look back and you think, goodness me, what were we doing? And some of the mistakes we made, you know, you're not aware of making those mistakes, but you get through them and you learn from them and you, you make it a better business. What were the mistakes you made? Oh, I think, you, you know, um, some of the wines we took on, some of the people we sold to, the you know the the, the just sometimes the way of doing things, the cost of of um, doing business at the time. Um, I think we were always pretty, you know. There's a few good things we did. I think you know one of them was, um, you know, making sure that a lot of people go into they, they talk about the wine business and they love the wine, but they forget about the business. Um, so I, and Nick was very, very keen on that. And he always stressed that aspect of, of business. So I learned a lot from him about that. And I learned from Raymond and Otri about that as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, we were keen on retaining cash and protecting margin. And those are the two things that if you ask me the two most important things about the company today, I'd say those are probably still the two most important. And we had great people around us. And that is, again, the key factor. Yeah. And one of whom is Lucianne, and we're even using Lucianne's computer today because yours didn't work. Indeed. I mean, Lucianne's been a key bit of the business, isn't she? I mean, almost a sort of, uh, you know, un- un- underrated with the wrong word, but an, un- an unsung heroine of, <laughs> of what you've done at Liberty in many ways, I think. Oh, hugely. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a joint venture. Um, mm. You know, we started a, a business and a family in the same year, and I'm not sure I'd recommend it to people, but that's just the way it, it, it happened. Um, but, you know, it's, I can be fairly hard, hard um, headstrong at times. Mm. Um, you know, she knows when to sort of, or when and how to sort of um, you know, approach me on that. Um, and she's, you know, her strengths are, are, are you know, complementary to mine and mine are complementary to hers. And mm. I think, um, 
you know, she's, she's someone who's never stopped developing and continues you know, to develop. And since she left Liberty, she's gone, she's doing a sort of master's in art and architecture in the Islamic Middle East. And she's just continues to amaze me, uh, you know, with what she, what she does. And, and she did that at Liberty for, for a number of years as well. Yeah, when you, you know, Liberty's grown to be a very successful company, You've got 400 odd producers, 25 countries, 220 employees now, and I think what, 225 million turnover? 125 million. 120, yeah. well, not 225, but yeah. maybe it'll become 225. But I mean, I just wonder what, what's the secret of its success? Um, you know, you, you've almost alluded to the fact that it's kind of succeeded beyond your wildest dreams, I suspect. But yeah. has it been the people most of all, do you think? I think it's, it's a number of factors. I mean, the people, that have been, you know, uh, uh, there. I mean, people like Tim Tweedy have been at Liberty Wine since day one. He was our first salesman and is still, you know, key part of the company. Mm. Um, we've had a number of key people over the years. Um, and we've also, I think, you know, one of the best things that Lucien and I did was sort of seek some outside advice as well. You know, um, when you're running a company, um, it can be sometimes, you know, a little bit lonely and you're sometimes wondering, you know, what should we do next? So, you know, bringing in people like Neville Abraham from an, at an early stage to sort of, you know, act as a... As what a, was his background? He's a restaurateur, wasn't he? Really? Neville was a restaurateur. He'd, he'd, mm. he'd started a company called Les Amis du Vin back in the mm. 70s. He was a civil servant, a management consultant. He'd done any number of things. And then he built up Group Chez Girard. So I got to know Neville by selling wine to him. And he was incredibly helpful. And still is. Um, I still, you know, he's no longer our chairman, but I see him regularly. John Ratcliffe, who was at Oddbins in the 1980s, and I again sold wine to John when he was um, building Oddbins uh, Australian range, which you know, changed the name of the game for for Australian wine in the UK. Um, and John went on to run Seagram UK, and then has been a consultant. And again, he's been a consultant for a director at Liberty Wines for a number of years. So their outside advice was, was hugely important. And then people like Michael Hill Smith and Martin Shaw from Sean Smith, they not only did they put money in for, right at the beginning, but their advice has also, you know, over the years been, been incredibly helpful. Yeah. So different people from different walks of the wine, yeah. broader wine business in a way. And I think people sometimes think it's, it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. Um, I think you've got to look at it as a sign of strength. Um, that's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. You need, yeah, you need, you need that advice. You're, you know, there's always going to be someone who's smarter than you and, and, you know, you've got to seek them out and ask for their advice. And if you then decide to ignore it, well, at least you've considered it. It's your fault. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a bit about the entree. Cause you sell a lot to restaurants. You, you know, you love going to restaurants. You're, you're, you're a, a, a big eater and, and a very generous host and you've won, you know, on trade supplier awards you know dozens of occasions i just wonder what you think makes a good wine list and, and a bad one and also what makes a good on trade supplier because you clearly are that just tell us about those things yeah i think i think they're two two different sort of um aspects really i think you know good wine list is um you know some, sometimes you can have you know sort of 25 whites 25 reds and and you look at the list and it's fantastic because it's been it's been edited you know it's been um other times you look at a list and, and again, you know, so Pascal, the French philosopher springs to mind, you know, sorry, sorry, sorry for writing you such a long letter. Didn't have time to send, write you a short one. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a, 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 sometimes it's easier to put together a really long wine list because you could just choose everything. Um, but I think, you know, for me, one of the lists that disappoint me most is when they got, let's say a lot of the right names, but all the wrong vintages. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's like the Morecambe and Wise thing, isn't it? You know, the, all, all the right notes, but in the wrong order. Exactly, exactly. Um, or sometimes, you know, the wrong vineyards. You know that you know, there are certain producers, um, you know, like if I want, you know, one of our own, Aldo Conterno, you know, if there's one vineyard I'm going to want from, from Conterno, you know, Romy Rasco's more expensive, Chicala Colonel at the same price, but I oh, love Chicala. For me, it's classic absolutely sort of you know typical of of busia and sometimes you know they might have colonella there which is good but for me it's not the wine i'm looking for from from alicantana so you know you have those sorts of things um and i think also pricing you know people need to be um you know i know restaurants need to make money and i don't have a problem at all with their their margin but when you make the same margin on a bottle of of you know, a wine that they're buying for 200 pounds as you do on a wine they're buying for six pounds. I think, you know, they need to start thinking about the cash margin and attracting people into, to, to, um, you know, looking further up the list Mm. and, and working on cash margin rather than percentage margin. I think what makes a good on-trade supplier is, you know, I jokingly said before that we're not really a wine company, we're a logistics company. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's our ability you know, restaurant finishes business tonight at, at you know, 11 o'clock, trade's gone. They suddenly look, they've sold six bottles of a particular wine and they've got a party at lunch tomorrow that wants it. So they place an order and it's there between 10 and 12 tomorrow morning. And that's what we do because, yes. um, you know, people don't, restaurants don't have space to hold wine now. They don't have the cash either. Um, so they need, that's been sort of something, a feature that, that wine merchants need to take on. So, you know, that... Are looking after the details and just making sure that they you've got a broad enough range to supply as much as they can and that you get the little things right you get them the right vintage the right wine at the right price delivered to them at the right time so it's mm. it sounds simple but it's, uh, it's no it's really it really isn't because a lot yeah. of people do it very badly L- listen tell us about australia because that's another one of your great loves and areas of expertise um it's quite a contrast with italy in many ways i just wonder when did that passion start i think it was probably you know, the, the, the wine flight of a lifetime in 1992, which, um, you know... I was both, on that. We both remember well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A wine yeah. fright of a lifetime, as some people called it. But uh, <laughs> it, it was a brilliant thing from the late Hazel Murphy. I mean, about 100, just over 100 people from the UK trade. Mm. And I went down there thinking, like a lot of people in the trade did at the time, out of ignorance, um, that oh, Australia is, you know, it's a country of big blends. You know, mm. they don't have the same degree of sort of, you know... Um, terroir as we call it that, that you might find in, in parts of europe and i went down there and you know I, I i went i dropped out of the trip one day the trip program and uh simon loftus and and we went to see uh bob mclean the late bob mclean of st Helens came and picked us up and took us to the barossa mm. i went to see robert o'callaghan rocky yeah rocky charlie yeah. melton and st Helens, and drove a bit around the barossa and i i left thinking how wrong was I? That's, this is a great wine producing region. There is so much diversity within this region. Uh, it's got exactly the same characteristics as you would find in any of the great European regions. Mm. And I, to this day, you know, I think Australia has moved in that direction and it is doing so more and more. And I think, um, you know, to this day, to me, it's one of the most exciting countries in the world of wine. Australian Chardonnay is one of the most exciting categories, what they've done and the way they've changed the style. So I think it's it's um, discovering the country and you know, being being willing to shed your prejudices. 
um, which I think were, were, were very helpful there. I mean, you've also got involved in some winemaking projects of your own, haven't you? You know, in Italy, France, New Zealand, and also Australia. Uh, I just wonder what what do you bring as David to the party? Because you're not a trained winemaker, neither am I either. But you know, is it is it tasting ability? Is it commercial nous? Is it is it I don't know hunch? Is it bringing the right people together? It's partly that. I think it's mm. it's it's the bridge sometimes between the winemaker and the and the trade and, or the consumer. Mm. You know, and it's um, you know the winemaker will quite often know how to put the blend together. Um, you know, I might have some different views, but I, you know, I do think that, you know, to put together a good blend, you need to be a pretty damn good winemaker. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in the UK trade who want to put together blends and, you know, sometimes we get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's lots of things we would miss out because we lack the technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, yeah, I, I, I certainly bring that bridge, which is partly technical. I've got a, I spent a lot of time in cellars, a lot of time tasting young wines, so I have a, a a decent understanding of those. But I've also got the the the, the uh, what I think our customers in the UK are going to want. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because recently you were talking about what winemakers have to do these days to sell their wines. I mean, it's changed a lot, I think. And you said that work starts when the wine leaves the cellar. That making the wine is obviously a big part of it, but then. You've got to get it and then sell it, haven't you? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think I made that comment probably in relation to people like the Pirapans, you know, who, who when I first started dealing with the, the parents in the 1980s, you know, they made one of Italy's great white wines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it sold because it was Pirapan. Today, I still think they make one of Italy's great white wines, but I think there's so much more competition. And across the market, there's so much more competition. So, you know, they've... And, and today's consumer has so much more choice as a result, and they're also more distracted. Mm. And I think, you know, you've got to get out there, mm. and if you're a winemaker, and tell your story. Mm. I think you've got to sort of bring your little bit of, of Italy or France or Australia or wherever it is to the market and explain why it is. Because I think the only future for wine, in my mind, the market's becoming incredibly more polarized, but for premium wine, is to distinguish yourself differentiate yourself mm-hmm. from the rest and and you know you're going to have a a story to tell and it's going to be race, you know sort of uh, based upon a plot of land that you have and how you interpret mm-hmm. um the grapes that are brought to you because you know you give it's like a chef you give three chefs the same ingredients and tell them to make the same dish they'll all do it differently mm-hmm. and winemaking is the same part of that personality part of that character needs to come across in the wines the only way you can transmit that to the customers, to the sommeliers, to the retailers, to the consumers, is by telling that story yourself in person. Yeah, and, and it's it's not just sort of producer tastings or, or, or consumer tastings. It's also you know podcasts that we're doing, and it's Instagram lives, and it's yeah. and it's having a social media presence. And I think the best people get that. You know, it's it's yeah. it's it's multifaceted, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the, your, your travel, because, I mean, you, you travel as much and even more than I do, which is saying a lot, really, you know, five months a year, sometimes you're away. I just wonder how important it is for a wine merchant to actually visit sellers and vineyards. I mean, you've never been a broker where you just take a margin on something that somebody else is doing. I just wonder, you know, what have you learned from all those visits? You've talked about the sellers, but it, the vineyard bit's important too, isn't it? I think it's absolutely vital. It's, you know, I, but also so are the people. You know, the vineyards and the winery, you know, they're important, but, you know, I think I slightly, you know, jokingly said at times, oh, we don't buy wines, we buy people, you know, we buy into the people. Mm-hmm. Because, 
you know, we're different, say a retail buyer, you can change, you know, every year, whatever the Chianti you're selling, because you want to freshen things up for your, um, your customers. You know, we're an agency house. We have developed relationships with producers and we sell them, you know, usually on an exclusive basis into the UK across all channels. Um, so if we're going to do that, if we're going to be investing in someone, we want to make sure there's a future to what they're doing. So, you know, there's people like, you know, I go back for Paolo De Marchi or Giovanni Manetti, you know, go back. To the beginning, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah to, yeah, to sort of, you know, 86, 87 with mm. them. So, mm. you know, that's 30, 36, 37 years. And, you know, I've seen them change a huge amount. I think I've probably changed quite a bit. Um, but, you know, they were the right people at the time. And, and you know, they've evolved to become even better winemakers and more important, um, even better grape growers and viticulturists than they were back then. I suppose that's the question I'd like to ask you is, is what makes a great winemaker? Is it, is it increasingly someone who's also a great viticulturist, i.e. that they, that they, they get the vineyards? Yeah, I think that's the, that is the absolute key. I think, you know, if you go to Barolo, let's say in the, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, people talked about, Oh, it's all about, you know, how we manage the towns is the winemaking, you know, you're a modernist or a traditionalist, that sort of, um, old fashioned sort of view of things. Um, it wasn't the case at all. You know, if you look at it now, again, with the benefit of hindsight and what we know, um, it's been all about viticulture. Mm. You know, that's learning how to manage tannins. Depends on what you do in the, in, in the vineyard. And the best grape growers are the ones who are making the best wines, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an Instagram live with with Giovanni Minetti from Fontodi, one of your producers last week, in fact. And he was saying that, you know, even 10 years ago, people were still asking him, how much new oak has this got? And he said, nobody asked him that anymore. Now they want to know, you know, which bit of the vineyards it come from? What sort of soil is it on? You know, what effect has regenerative agriculture had on the way you grow grapes? I mean, I, I think that we as consumers and as journalists and as drinkers have probably changed too, haven't we? Oh, hugely. And I think I see that with the younger generation. I mean, with my kids, but with uh, younger consumers or younger sommeliers, they're much more in tune. They want to know about your provenance. Mm. Um, and I think they're also very aware of the environmental impact mm. um, of, yeah. of, of, of the products and what, and what they're doing. And, and I think, you know, someone like Giovanni, he says, you know, I live in, in the middle of my vineyards, as does my brother next door and our family. So, you know, why would we want to spray sort of, you know, uh, synthetic herbicides or pesticides mm. on our vine? On your front door, as it were. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, po you know, potentially sort of poisoning your children. But mm. um, so I think that that regenerative, you know, I'm involved in a vineyard in, in Australia and we're you know, I've, I've, and I've learned a lot from Prue, Prue Henschke, who you had on recently as well, about regenerative viticulture. And what they've done at Henschke is absolutely amazing. You look at their vineyards and it just makes total sense. You know, you brought in the, the, the early settlers brought in veg, you know, vegetation, plants, trees, etc., from Europe or from England that they were used to and planted them. And as a result, they got rid of a lot of the native um, uh, bushes. Now they're bringing back in the native plants because, and that creates back comes all the wildlife, yeah. all the biodiversity yeah. that's associated with those native things. And it means you need to spray less because you've got a better balance in the vineyards. The pests you are spraying against, their predators are now back in yeah. the native bushes. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I think that's been wonderful to watch that development. Just, I've got to ask you a little bit about politics because you're quite a political animal. I, I just wonder how you see the future of the wine business in the UK. I mean, you know, it's it is partly political with things like duty and and you know 
uh, labour shortages because of Brexit, things like that. I mean, is it more or less exciting than it was in 1978 when you started? I mean, are you optimistic about the future of it? I think there's no doubt that it's more exciting. I think I've been really lucky to sort of live through a period of incredible you know growth in the uh, you know knowledge of wine and the consumption of better wine i mean if you go back then the per capita consumption was i think eight liters per head per year you know went up to i think around 26 liters it's now down to 23 you know the uk market's lost 100 million bottles in the last decade of you know it's shrunk by 100 million bottles um but i think where we're seeing the only area of growth is is in sort of what might be termed the premium wines, you know, mm-hmm. even there, the, the quantity is shrinking, but the, the value of that market is growing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really positive about that future. I'm positive about the, you know, the young consumers and the young trade. I think, you know, Brexit has been a massive own goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things we talked earlier about Liberty Wines and, you know, how people have been such an important part of it. Many mm-hmm. of our you know, best people came from outside the UK. And many of them came from within the EU. And they came over when they finished university, got a job to improve their English, got a job and stayed with us for a number of years. And they were hugely important in the development and growth of Liberty Wines. That's not going to happen anymore. Um, You know, and and I think it's, we've cut ourselves off from a a, a great source of, of talent and I think that will have an impact on the wine trade. There's, you know, bureaucratically, it's much more expensive to bring wine into the UK. Um, you know, we've got new duty rate coming in, which some th- some person in the Treasury seems to think is a good idea. Is going to be incredibly more complex. And more expensive for most wines, right? Yeah, it's much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're adding, at the moment, we'll be adding about 40 pence a bottle. To, to to any bottle of wine. So 40 pence on a bottle that sells at 20 pounds is not going to be that much. You know, the lower end is going to have a ma- massive impact. Mm. Um, but I still think it's going to add hugely to the cost of doing business. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the clouds on the horizon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I think that, you know, the wine trade is about openness, mm. you know, to other countries and cultures. Mm. And, and I worry that, as a general rule, you know, um, England has become is becoming. I say England, um, much much more insular, mm. and much more, um, uh, yeah, much more insular. You know, we have a business in Ireland. I go to, I'm over there, you know, fairly regularly, and some of the wine shops I see over there have a range which is fantastic, mm. and they're booming, um, and and you know, still in the EU, they're still in the EU, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and open. Yeah, exactly. to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. Listen, final question. I just wondered how you get away from wine. I mean, you're, you're chairman now. Um, you're not quite as busy as you used to be, but you're still one of the busiest people I know. Um, you're a big cyclist. How else do you get away from wine? You're a big reader. I know that. Uh, you like going to the theatre, music. What, what else sort of floats your boat? Really? I mean, live theatre, I think, is one of the ways of, of getting completely removing any anything from your mind, you know, because you become... Um, you know, there's that wonderful suspension of disbelief when you go into the theatre, and and it's just it's it's fabulous. I love that, and that's the same with you know concerts or or anything like that. And I wish I went more. Mm-hmm. Um, reading, I, I yeah, I, I should do more. Again, I'm I'm probably sort of uh, 
there's a lot on. I'm, I'm reading um, Cormac McCarthy's latest book at the moment, uh, The Passenger, which is, again, just takes me away and clears my mind. But the best thing is being on a bike. It's a, it's, it's a Zen experience. It's sort of, you know, you just, you have to be concentrating on what you're doing. Because otherwise you're going to fall over. Yeah, fall otherwise off. you're going to fall over or, or you'll crash into a car or you'll not see someone who's, you know, turning without signaling or something like that. So being able to clear your mind like that and to sort of burn off some of the calories that yeah. one might have put on. Exactly. Uh, from know, eating and drinking too well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, listen, David, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your views and amazing story, really, that, you know, who would have guessed when you started out in a gay bar in Dublin that we'd end up here. Indeed. Well, thanks very much, Tim. All right. Pleasure. Okay. Cheers. Bye. I love David's wit, intelligence, and business acumen. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Jason Haas from Tabas Creek Vineyard in California. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.